Hey, Helicopter Podcast listeners, this is John Gray from the Hangar Z Podcast. I want to let you all know Vertical Fowler's Spring 2024 issue is now available. In our Spring 2024 issue, we head over to Leon County for a look at how law enforcement agencies in Northern Florida are combining forces to enhance crime fighting. We also visit Metro Aviation in Shreveport, Louisiana to learn about the work behind installing a Metro interior in an Airbus helicopter. We connect with the experts in the search and rescue sector for an update on the latest trends, training, and tools using helicopter rescue missions. And finally, we catch up with the Los Angeles Police Department's Aviation Unit for a look at its training programs. All this, plus highlights of some new products and services that made their debuts at Heli Expo 2024. To check out the latest issue of Vertical Valor, go to verticalvalor.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to find magazines. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Cellicopter. Tired of listings that go nowhere? Exhausted by tire kickers who waste your time? Don't sell your helicopter alone. Cellicopter handles the entire process from start to finish. So, if your helicopter is sat too long, waiting for a buyer, contact the team at Cellicopter today for your complimentary market valuation. Call 1-855-CELLICOPTER, 1-855-735-5226, or email sales at cellicopter.com. Cellicopter. List it. Sell it. Done. All right, and welcome to the Helicopter Podcast. My name is Halsey Scheider. And this is episode two with longtime friend, Emily Spades. Emily, what's happening? Not much, man. It's it's January. Well, it's February. God, see, I don't even know what month it is already. It's February. Um, we're getting ready to go back on contract in three weeks, actually. So, Oh, my gosh. Well, I can't yeah. wait to get into all that. I know a lot of our listeners are going to be excited to hear about uh, what you're doing and what contracts you're flying and things like that. In fact... Full disclosure to our audience, uh, all five of you. First off, thanks for listening. <laughs> Second off, uh, there's no true agenda, right? Uh, I haven't got to catch up with Emily for a long time, so I'm actually really excited just to kind of talk shop. And really the true purpose of this podcast is just to talk about helicopters. So I'm excited to hear about what you're doing. But I figured just as a little icebreaker, take a little trip down memory lane. Uh, I want to throw myself under the bus a little bit. But I also want to talk about my favorite CFI interview on the ground portion, that is. I don't, I don't remember if we flew together. but No, I flew with Marcus, not you. You, you had a CFI interview with Marcus and I uh, on the ground. And the whole purpose of the interview is, hey, we're going to have these guys and gals teach a lesson. And, you know, settling with power and whatever. And I think that you were at the end of the day and... If I had to hear about settling with power one more time or, you know, low G mass bumping, I was going to do something. So I was like, do you remember what you taught us? Because I remember it. I do. And as soon as you started this, it popped in my head. And so if you look ironically right behind my shoulder, the picture. Yeah, I see it. Kind of, that's, <laughs> that's just a hilarious, great tie in. Um, yeah, we were just doing a quick introduction. You know, where are you from? What's your background? And I remember mentioning I'm, I grew up in Vermont from New England. And I do believe it was you that was basically it was like the only thing I know about Vermont is maple syrup. Yep. And it just kind of went from there. All of a sudden, I just remember Marcus being like, you know what? Scratch your whole lesson. You probably spent days prepping. You're all ready for it. And teach me how to make maple syrup. And that's what I taught you guys. Yeah. Um, and on top of the funny thing, I grew up on a maple orchard. My parents have been making maple syrup since before I was born. So that it was so cool. Yeah, it was super funny. I thought it was really just a great, great way to do the interview, actually, looking back on it. Um, and it still cracks me up. But I actually do mention that every now and then with people prepping for a CFI interview. And I'm like, you know, just be prepared to talk about or teach something you know about or you have an interest in. Um, yeah, that was, just, that was just great. I just made the day. Yeah, that was cool. I remember thinking, I was actually thinking about it when I was driving today, kind of some topics to talk about with you. And I was like, man, I should have done that with more people because it was like, essentially, if you can teach someone something kind of random, unexpected, then of course, you're going to be able to hopefully go in and teach something that you know about. Exactly. Um, and oddly know, enough, since that interview, we took that into CFI training at one point. I kind of like day one of teaching, everyone's nervous. They're like, oh my God, I got to teach auto yeah. rotations and low RPM. And they were just like, you know what? Come in day one, prepare something. I don't know if your previous job, your best hobby, your favorite interest, something you know about, something you enjoy. And 
it actually was crazy how cool of an icebreaker it was to get them into the mode of standing in front of people in a classroom and just talking about something. Yeah. So well, thanks, Halsey, for thing. that. You actually helped other CFIs through well, that. Look at that. Look at that. Uh, all this, all these years later. Um, it, well, and if you think about it, right, like one thing that I think is nerve wracking for people learning how to uh, become a CFI and teach is first off, we're helicopter pilots. So I, I never signed up to be a teacher necessarily. Right. Now, you and I both know that I like to talk a lot. So talking and getting in front of people <laughs> is never really an issue. But structuring it for me was the hard part. But a lot of people are uncomfortable. And the thing that actually made me most uncomfortable is like, it's hard to talk about uh, technical topics that people already know about because you're almost Absolutely. feeling so judged. So I feel like if you can go into it and teach me how to make maple syrup or, you know, let's talk about our other mutual interests, the Packers and tell me about them. Right. <sighs> it's like, you can, you can break the ice. You can make people. Uh, yeah, I know it's ridiculous. Um, but you know, essentially you can, uh, you know, get a, make it not be such a scary thing. And I could actually see that being a really effective icebreaker. It is. It was, I think it was beneficial in the long run of the way we were able to actually incorporate that into CFI training down the road. Um, it does, it just eases everybody up. Well, um, I like to hear, I like to hear that a little Halsey rubbed off because I have to be honest again <laughs> to our five, maybe seven listeners at this point, but you know, I am, I'm 32 now. Uh, I went from f high school to practically flight school. Whereas someone like mm -hmm. yourself, which we're going to talk about, obviously, military background, you were really an adult going through a flight school where I was like a, a kid going through flight school, becoming a flight instructor at age 20 uh, and being at this uh, management levels uh, at, you know, 23, 24. I just thought I was the berries, you know, like, oh, my God, <laughs> I'm like the coolest guy. Um, and I look back at that and I know that. Some of the way that I acted, that Zach Whitehead would say, is like I managed like I coached football because uh, I also coached like little kid right. football at the time. I and I was like, oh. Yeah. It's ah. like oh, oh, my God. Like, you know, I look back and I cringe and I feel like I just want to throw it out there to the world that if you had experiences with me in the past that were negative, uh, that I apologize. And I feel like specifically with you i feel like one time i just was so mean like we were flying it could even been on your stage check and i was like oh, i just like did you oh we did fly together i think i was like beating you up and it was just like um you know i just want to apologize just you know what five six seven I, I years later i won't hold it against you um okay, you're not good. the only you're not the only pilot who has abused <laughs> other pilots or myself during a check ride stage check moment so and that's true. I mean, we actually, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, I think last year, and I was talking about kind of defending myself. He was like, man, your stage check sucked and you're a dick and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was like, well, thanks. Uh, but I felt like personally, I wasn't actually very well prepared going into being a CFI. I felt like my stage check was super easy. I felt like my check ride was easy. And then I became a flight instructor. And if you're in this realm right now and you're about to become a flight instructor and you're listening, I would really take note that it's a big responsibility and it's a kind of a scary thing really you know it's this blind leading the blind and it is and, you know, and, and also part of that though i think we've all you could probably look back and experience this we all started out baby brand new instructors here started doing stage stage checks moved into more advanced flight training um i know i changed the way i did stage checks and instructed from day one down to you know almost a year and a half later, it was not the same. Like I was not the same flight instructor. Yeah. Um, and I hope for the better at the end. But I think that's something two people realize you do evolve with it. Um, you realize what's working well for you, what's working well for students, and also what's not working. Um, and you got to be able to adapt with that. Yeah, it's totally true. It's like I always kind of felt like this out of, out of body almost like when you're in the moment learning there's so much going on, especially at Hillsborough, right? Like 18,000 people talking <sighs> on the radio, most of them Chinese. So you can't even understand them. Like just this crazy overload. So like just trying yes. to focus was one thing. And then when you become a flight instructor and you can kind of look almost from this outside perspective and you can see like, Oh, that's what my flight instructor was saying. <laughs> or that's, you know, I, this makes sense start, all of a sudden. You start to see it. So it's like you're not even flying, but between that, you know, 200 hours and 1,000 hours or however long you end up instructing, you really become such a better pilot 
just by watching the mistakes, you're finally in a mental space. It's the observation level for me that I finally, you know, hundreds of hours into being a flight instructor actually caught on that your student can fly by themselves. You're not, you're not deathly guarding the controls every moment of the flight anymore. What allows you to do is take a step back and observe, listen to the radio more, watch around you more. Um, and I think that's also part of being a flight instructor is you have to be able to understand you're still learning. Like, yeah. I'm sure we all threw those brown flight suits on at Hillsborough meeting number one. And we're like, well, oh, we made it. Um, yeah, that's the beginning. I mean, that's just the beginning of it. It's so funny how that brown suit meant so much. I mean, at least for me, it meant so much. I mean, uh, for our listeners out there, we uh, we went to Hillsborough Aviation. That's now Hillsborough Aero Academy. Um, but it's a big school. And the flight instructors would walk around in these tan suits and they would click together. They would all smoke cigarettes in the same spot. They would all look super cool. It was a club. It was a club. And I just remember. Club, I just wanted that damn suit. I mean, I just... Uh, I, I don't know if I was more excited to just be able to put the tan suit on or actually get paid to fly. Uh, but I just remember that being so funny. But to go back to a little bit of your training and whatnot, I guess you'll have to remind me. So you started flight training after me, obviously, because we, I think, was I already instructing <coughs> when you first started or was I still in you, training? I think you were an instructor when I got to Hillsboro. Um, I actually started my flight training previous to Hillsboro. I started at Chesapeake Bay Helicopters. Um, in Virginia. I, I, That's now, where I did I my private that. training and some of my instrument commercial training there before I moved out, out to Oregon and finished up the rest of my training. Okay, so that's interesting. So you, uh, military background, correct? Navy? Correct, Navy, yep. Um, thank you, by the way. Um, thank you. Just some slitty sickler that did not... I should have gone to the military. I feel like that's like my... If I'm going to have a regret, it's going to be like, you're such a tool. You should have just... But I just went, I guess, straight to the... Uh, Sally May line and got my student loan for helicopter school. But um, so you started at Chesapeake Bay. Did they have uh, like a military 141 training? There, there, so there were a 141 similar? school. And this, this was, yeah, this was uh, definitely a few years before I was in Hillsborough. This is while I was still active duty. Um, there are part 141 school. We didn't have the same GI Bill, VA funding that what you and I are familiar with now with the post 9 11 GI Bill. Um, so it was the original Montgomery GI Bill. So what that includes, they didn't pay for private training. So all your private training is out of pocket. Okay. Um, and a lot of it, the whole the whole point of the GI Bill originally premise was you transition out of the military. They're paying for you to have training to be employed. Um, and so in the eyes of the VA and everybody beforehand, it was a, well, you can't work as a private pilot. So we're not going to pay for it. Um, Interesting. You know how that developed over the years. Yeah. Where we ended up with a full post 9-11, you know, four-year degrees paid for, private, start to finish through double I paid for. Um, so it was a little bit different. So I did my private training all out of pocket on my own on the weekends when I had days off from, from work at my command out there. Um, and it was cool. It was a great – Virginia Beach is a great location. We were flying out of um, Hampton Roads Executive Airport, a really pretty spot, you know, cross countries down the coast to North Carolina, go to first flight. Check out the Wright Brothers Memorial. Nice. Um, yeah, so it, it just was a great location. Um, so, I separated from the military, though, and that's kind of what led me moving out west was one of the job offers I took right off was moving across the country. Okay, and that's ultimately what brought you to Hillsborough. So it wasn't even it wasn't necessarily even the flight school that brought you to Hillsborough. It was a job? No, well, no, my job brought me out west. It actually brought me to Tucson, Arizona. Oh. And I was going to start trying to finish flight training out there and um, just things kind of fell through. So I started talking to Hillsboro and Hillsboro had actually what brought me to Hillsboro. Okay. I got you. So I just moved it all the way across the country. Prior so, to that. Who was your first instructor then at Hillsboro? Uh, Josh Gianni. Oh my God. The, <laughs> was, the man, the myth, the legend. I was like, how did you not remember it was how Josh? How did I not Gianni? remember it was Josh? Uh, I love Josh Gianni, who's actually now flying uh, for Maryland State Police. Yes. Which is yep. awesome. And Josh, I know that you're one of my now eight listeners. So if we could have you on the podcast, it would be great. Um, Definitely you should. The last time I saw Josh was at his wedding, actually. I was oh, wow. a proud... Uh, guest at that wedding uh had a little too much fun if i recall um but yes josh gianni is the man in fact some of my 
uh, fondest flying memories are R44 checkout with him. We had some very good times. He's a good stick. Oh, Josh is a great pilot, and he's an amazing flight instructor. And I think one of my favorite things with Josh was, to me, and we'll talk about this later on too, when it comes to like CRM and an aircraft and everything, to me, it's always about the personality of the person you're working with and where, when you get something that clicks. And Josh was one after first few flights. I was like, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about. He's easy to fly with. He's a great pilot. You know, um, but I did a majority of my training finishing up with at Hillsborough with Josh. Yeah. Yeah. Josh is like that guy. He's just like, probably not just in the helicopter world either. It's like, he's just that dude that you can connect with. He's just, it's just something about him. So, uh, I I do actually now to think back about, I do believe that we did have a great awkward long cross country flight where he was very upset and involved losing bicycles in downtown Portland. And I'm pretty sure you were involved in that. I, uh, I'm going to plead the fifth on whatever that (laughs) might be. Uh, if I was involved, I don't necessarily remember, uh, which is probably an issue. Uh, I, I, I always joke too. Part of flight training when you do long cross countries, I feel like there's a, a inadvertent therapy session on oh, both yeah. parties sometimes. And I just remember we're flying along and getting this story, and I was cool, guys. This sounds like a fun night. Like we had <laughs> a lot of very fun nights down. Uh, I can remember his place there, in Goose Hall. I think what's it called Goose is Goose Hollow. Is that that area of Portland? Oof. Sounds weird. It's, it doesn't sound right. But anyway. Uh, Josh, we love you. I get, we should probably move forward from Josh. But Josh, I want you on the podcast. Um, all right. So you did finish up your training then using the VI benefits. And so uh, what are the yeah. GI, excuse me, the VA? I think I mixed the two. What what did that look like for you then? So did you have your commercial all the way through your double I then uh, paid for by the yeah. VA? Yeah. So um, when I started at Hillsborough, they had implemented the post 9-11 GI Bill, which is the updated newer version of the previous one. Um, What that was allowing flight schools to do is partner with a college um, and develop their flight program tied to a degree program. So I transferred out here, enrolled in the flight courses at Portland Community College, which was Mm -hmm. our partner and proceeded there all the way through my double I. Yeah, so I, of course, am very familiar with the VA back then. Now, I feel like after I left and kind of moved on from the flight school world, some things happened within the actual uh, VA in regards to some flight schools. I don't believe Hillsboro, but some schools were abusing the uh, the GI benefits, essentially, using an A-star for private through yeah, double I. Yeah, and- um, instrument training in a 407. Like, I mean, it's very necessary. I mean, you should definitely... Don't get me wrong. I mean, we'll we'll talk about the 407, how much I love that aircraft shortly. Yeah. But um, I I would love to be a double I and all my students did all their instrument training in the 407. I, I I'd know. be ecstatic. Can you imagine like leaving as a flight instructor with like, uh, yeah, I have 200 hours in the Robbie and 900 in the 407. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. But Unfortunately, has- that I mean, those are the situations, you're right, that led into some of the, the changes and revamping of the VA's funding for flight schools and programs. Um, I've been a little far removed from the flight school portion the last couple of years, especially on that level. So I don't know 100% exactly where all the schools are at with that. Um, I know I know it's been an issue. Um, yeah. I'm very curious to learn. And in fact, I have a note out and uh, a response back from our mutual friend, Jared Friend. And ah. I know that he's very well connected into the uh, helicopter school world still. So uh, I'm excited to chat with him and kind of learn a little bit more about that VA program. Because ultimately, I do feel like, uh, you know, one can look at it like they're paying for your training. But essentially, you've earned that training. And the fact that some schools took advantage of it, and it was also a lack of oversight on the VA and whatnot. But it does kind of frustrate me that it was taken advantage of and who loses it's the veterans that lose yeah 100 percent. it was when they changed the program to include private training which was a huge step um you know, you you working in your position in the flight school you understand how much just for some students to be able to come in and finance that initial private training is a big ordeal um so the fact that they were willing to like yeah we'll take you from zero hours pay for everything was huge I mean, that yeah. started, you remember how many VA students we had, that started so many people's careers. Yeah, it was on huge. It. Um, 
once the system obviously got abused and things started changing, got a little out of hand with the spending, I understand if I, you know, I was a taxpayer. Of course. That you look at and be like, wait, we just spent how much to send somebody to school where this place does it for a fifth of the cost? And I understand that. Um, you know, I also, at one point, I know there were proposals going back to dropping the private funding, which, like I said, I was probably, I paid for my private pocket out of pocket i was privately yeah. funded during that part of my training um you you're not an, you're not an employable pilot essentially at that point i'm on the fence you know if that's how they want to go back to it to make the system better i wouldn't be opposed to it i think it would hurt people down the road maybe you would lose interest a lot fewer people i think having to put that much money up front might deter people from trying to get into this this industry but yeah. we'll see. Yeah, Jared obviously would be the man to talk to about this. Yeah, down the road no, I'm and- excited to talk to him about that and um, some of the the new European connection, the things that are happening. So it yeah. sounds like some yeah, they've got some good stuff going on. Some cool things happen at the Aero Academy there. So I'm excited to get with Jared. So, uh, so you get through your flight training. Uh, you were hired as a CFI. I remember well, that I because uh, <laughs> hey, you did it. Um, so how long? You have to remind me like of the overlap. How long was I still there? Because I feel like, man, I feel like maybe you were even teaching CFIs by the time I left. So I feel I, like. Yeah. That's, I mean, I hate to say it. it was, I feel like it wasn't that long ago, but it was definitely a few years now. Um, yeah. So I was definitely instructing when you left. You were uh, Dan Dopker taking over as the chief pilot while you were there. Double D. Yep. Um, so we had Dan there. I think I was doing stage checks about the time you were leaving, maybe. That makes I don't know sense. if I was already in CFI training. Um but yeah, I was going to start about almost two years. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of where I, I was at. So. Um, you know, obviously did the some of the different roles and things. And I think, honestly, that, that really actually, I was, what am I talking about? I was a flight instructor forever just because I took on different responsibilities. Right. Uh, you know, and I, I kind of look back and I'm like, man, I should have just like got my hours and gone, you know. But part of me is like, well, I guess it was kind of nice to get some management experience. And I lived in Oregon. I was from Oregon. So it just kind of made sense to. Yeah. Exactly. Be close You're, to family. It's, and, it's a great spot to be too. It's it is, it is. In fact, Hillary and I uh, spent this whole last summer in Oregon, uh, which was very oh, awesome. Yep. Actually, I think you offered. We I put a Facebook call out uh, to have like a uh, if I could like rent someone's house for like the summer, and you you actually reached out. I think I did because now that we really talk about that. You're going to be on fire contract. Here. Yeah. <laughs> never home go, in the summertime. Go figure. So, so. Um, interesting where we ended up staying. I'll have to fill you in on that. But uh, yeah, we got to hang out in Oregon. It was a lot of fun. And actually, uh, you know, I'm full time with my business now, Celicopter. But to keep current, I'm, I picked up a part time position with the news company here in San Antonio. Which is Heli Inc., which is, you know, big nationwide. And I think the helicopter is also in Portland. So I'm hoping at some point, like, an email will come across, like, Portland pilot wants a day off, you know, and I'll be like, oh, sign me up. It would be so fun to go back to the uh, old Hillsborough stomping ground and fly out there again. It'd be amazing. Always a good spot to fly out. Yep. So you go through training, uh, Mm -hmm. worked as a flight instructor. Uh, CFI training, all all the works. How how and when did you transition from kind of the flight instructor role into you know your what you're doing now, or or what was your first non instruction job? So, you know, kind of like the well, you kind of have a similar background actually. My first non flight instructor job was flying tours at Mount St Helens in a jet ranger. Oh um, yeah, that was with Hills Hillsboro on it and that was kind of fell into that role end of 2014 is when Hillsborough Aviation sold the flight school um oh and goodness. that was I know that's and when I, I left said, 2014 okay, is actually when so, I left so that's like so that was crazy yeah, the end of that year November is when Max sold the flight school off and the next spring season obviously Mount St. Helens was starting up in May on it just happened to be interacting with people on our 135 side and talking to them and then it was like hey what's your plans are you leaving are you looking for a new job or what do you think about flying Mount St. Helens it kind of just fell in there kind of conveniently it was hey you've been around I'd gone and shot some photo work up there for the company um, the summer before actually of you flying 
with me. Uh, I love that yeah, shot. I was like, <clears throat> it's actually our one of our background shots. Yep, I have it. Uh, you can't see it in the corner of my room right now, but I have oh, the awesome. the black and white. Uh, yeah, the one with like Mousy Helms in the background. Yeah, and, it's so yeah. epic. I that whole photo shoot was super cool, actually. Like you got a ton of cool photos. That was it was that was that was such a great day. It was just the most random. Like, hey, you shoot photos all the time. We're gonna send an aircraft up, chase Halsey around while he flies towards and take cool pictures. And I'm like, how fun is that? Yeah, and I feel like I mm-hmm. like I felt like I didn't even know about it. Like y'all just like showed up, and I think that's uh, a good probability too. That. That I think Franz might have called that morning or something. It's Franz, right? I don't know yeah. why I'm blanking. Yes. And he's like, oh, they're sending, they're doing photos. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, so, yeah, I remember that. And uh, it was cool to get all those fun photos. And uh, I mean, yeah, they're incredible. That I think that Mount St. Helens one that was my Facebook background forever, like the black and white with the, with the right. mountain in the background. So I was yeah. backup. I was just like the backup guy there. And so okay. every time I got to go fly about St. Helens, it was like not only awesome because I was just so like finally in a turbine, like because it took me forever. Like I, I did actually at one point think like I'm never going to fly a turbine helicopter. Like I'm just going to be a piston pusher, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And so it was so, just so fun to go. Uh, terrified of letting go of the button. I was like, I'm going to let go of the button when I'm starting. Like I just had like this. Oh, oh, oh God. Like, don't let go of the button. Um, flying a jet ranger again now, part time, uh, a couple times a month. And I'm still, I still have this like, I just don't let go of the button. Um, but I remember just always kind of freaking out. I'd be driving up to Mount St. Helens, like, ah, the button, the button. But, one thing that I loved about Mount St. Helens was like, it's literally the most beautiful place that I have ever flown. Like, it, it, it's definitely in like my top three favorite flight areas ever. Um, so I think that's just such a cool opportunity to be able to go up there. Yeah. It's like, here's your first turbine job. We're going to put you in a jet ranger. We're going to put it full of people and we're going to have you fly 10,000 feet up. <laughs> On yeah, top just go of fly around a volcano, it's fine. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. By the way, it's still smoking. You're like, okay, oh, yeah, what can go yeah. wrong? Yeah, that was a that was definitely some entertaining commentary. And if you remember too, it's not like other big tour companies where you've got an audio recording, multiple languages. Somebody hits play, and you're just cruising along. Like you're you're given the whole tour as the pilot. Yeah. No, you're um, you're the you're the pilot, the tour guide. You're everything. Yeah. So part of what I really enjoyed too with that is it kind of gave you the opportunity to learn more about the air again. I'm from the East coast. Like I knew very little about Mount St. Helens until being exposed, you know, through this job on there. So I was just, I thought it was the most interesting thing. They spent two days up at um, one of the, I think the Johnson Ridge observatory. And then one of the other visitor centers talking to some of the park rangers, but just getting cool info about it. Um, that obviously we have, the company's been flying tours up there for a long time. So talking to the other pilots that were up there, Soren, Mike, yourself, Dan. Mike. I just, so. I mean, my, my go-to tour thing was to just make stuff up, really. I did that at the Grand Canyon, too. I was like, what can I, I wonder how far I can take it. Not necessarily. I'm not going to throw names under the bus, but there is a there is a great tour conversation of one of our previous pilots up there. Talked about Harry Truman, which those of you not familiar with Mount St. Helens, Harry Truman's kind of a big deal up there. He he's, perished he's in the, the eruption. Guy. But he stayed. He stayed right to the end. Um, passengers on board asked if it was President Truman and the pilot not being an American native or you know, U.S. citizen said yes at first. Oh, and God. And was like, oh, wait. No, no, no. Um, I don't I use so. I used that joke in probably like 75% of my tours because I thought it was the funniest thing ever. Like... You, I mean, you literally I had a passenger convinced that President Truman died at Mount St. Helens. Well, the thing that would crack me up when all tours, and honestly, I, I don't remember a lot of my St. Helens tours because I think I was like white knuckling the whole time anyway, just because it was like, <laughs> just don't break the helicopter, you know? Right. Uh, and like, I just remember going from like what Spirit Lake up to the crater, and it was like, oh my god, oh. like this little this little helicopter does not want to do it. And, uh, so I'm like, just don't break the helicopter. Oh, and I have to give a tour, but I, you know, I did the Grand Canyon tours for a while with Maverick and by and large, I had a great time. In fact, I enjoyed working for that company. Uh, I thought it was going to be like, you know, a whole bunch of dudes that were, had all these big egos, you know, like what could happen with 70 guys flying, you know, tours, but it was actually, 
super fun, but it was something that was so obnoxious was unfortunately the people that we're giving tours to would ask like the craziest questions. They'd be like, mm. can you, can you tell me the composition of each layer of the Grand Canyon, like the rock? And I'm like, Ooh, uh, you my master's degree in geology. And- yeah, no, unfortunately I cannot. Uh, but if you look down there, there's a river, you know, like, like, what are you going to do? So, yeah, I did. Actually, I got really lucky. Um, I had a tour of a Mount St. Helens and it was actually somebody who'd worked with the Army Corps of Engineers right after the eruption, um, heavily, heavily involved with the uh, recovery efforts and and what happened later in the Tudor River Valley. Yeah. And he brought a family member who grew up in that whole area, the I think Kelso Longview area remembers everything from before the eruption and he just asked me right before the beginning of the flight and he's like hey i've worked up here i haven't been up here in 20 years do you mind if i do most of the talking because you really want to as the flight path progressed around explain like oh i remember we put this dam in and that road and that's that was so cool i was like i'm just gonna sit here and fly yeah like, and you probably and actually picked up learned, you probably learned a ton of stuff exactly um and it's also it was kind of at the end of the flight got a little a little strange because I glanced over this gentleman. He's talking away. Um, and it was, his eyes were teared up at the end. He hadn't been up there in 20 years. Um, so, well, it's, you know, like, it's, oh, that's I mean, cool. Mount St. Helens in itself is kind of profound, but, you know, I think something that we take for granted as helicopter pilots is just the experience of flying above anything, let alone a volcano, but anything. It's just, it's such a different perspective, it's such a different vantage yeah. point. It's exhilarating. It's exciting. It's a roller coaster for some people. Like it's my, you know, it's your Monday morning, right? For us, but it's like, right, you know, a big crazy experience. Just the helicopter itself. So I, I definitely have been around a lot of people that were just overwhelmed by the moment of of being in the helicopter. So right. you flew the Mount St. Helens tours. Did you do that for one or two summers? I did that for one season. Um, during that season of Mount St. Helens, that was the year we actually started operation down in Sedona, Arizona. Um, so we'd have to put an aircraft down there. Okay. So the following, um, that first winter after the Mount St. Helen tour season kind of ended, I went back, I was actually back at the flight school as a flight instructor for the winter, um, just picking up off the ramp, random 206 Jet Ranger gigs out of the Portland area. Sure. And then actually went down to Sedona and did some flying down to Sedona, which that's another breathtaking, very surreal flight experience just because the scenery is amazing. Um, and that that was just part. That was, so that was year two of okay. being a one hundred and thirty-five pilot. And early to I'd say like July time frame, our our chief pilot calling me was like, "So I was on days off. I was back in, in the Hillsborough area at home, and it's like if you're around, come in the hangar, talk to me." I'm just like, cool. What's up? But it was basically like we're we're gonna stop that thing. But I need you in a long ranger carded work fires. And I know so many people would be like, oh, yeah, that's where it's at. I'm pretty sure my heart stopped for a second. I was like, do you really think I should be doing this? <laughs> I, like, I, I did not yeah. think I was at anywhere, anywhere close to being like, you want me to what? Like, um, yeah, like you're like looking behind of, you like, who are they talking to? Right, right. Was, was there another person in the room with us? Um, did you call the right person in? <laughs> um, just because I still felt like I was so green and junior in this utility environment. Um, that's kind of just where that summer roll all of a sudden. It was like, here's a long ranger. But you want to talk about starting an aircraft and being paranoid on. That See, was... I, prefer, I prefer the long ranger though. So for our listeners out there that have not flown the B model or the long ranger, the B model, you you press the button, the igniter goes, the compressor starts, and you just kind of snap the throttle into idle, and it it does its whole uh, fancy start, not fancy at all, but it does its sequence starts, and 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 you just hope that it doesn't blow up, and if it does, you just gotta hold down the button and roll off. Whereas the Long Ranger, it's modulated, so uh, I don't know what the technique you taught is, but at Air Evac Life Team, you know they're still rocking the uh, Long Ranger, so I ended up right. flying that as well, and. We did the two fingers, you know, one yes, on the igniter, exactly. yep. one on the, the 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 throttle release button tab, whatever it's called, and so you, you press the button and then you just kind of inch it in, yeah, which which was super nerve wracking in the beginning. But do you agree that long term it was like you had control of it oh, and you're like it's just way better? I think after like two weeks of flying it every day, you're just like, oh, this is great. Um, 
you know, I still like the first two weeks probably held my breath the entire start too. But yeah. oh, totally, yeah, um, yeah. I've been kind of I haven't been in L long term in a little while now, so I remember I took about a whole season off of being in an L. And then at the end of the season, they're like, oh, hey, we've got this call. We needed burn contract for a couple of weeks. Like, it's in the L. I was like, cool. I was like, oh, God, I haven't started L in uh, Yeah. Let me go start like, that real fast. <laughs> let me not screw this up. Um, I'd like to keep my employment. So that's around 2016-ish. You started flying fire contracts. Does that sound correct? Yeah. And um, that was, it was a CWN. It was a call when needed contract um, on it. So I still just flying random off the ramp utility work for the company okay um so that's actually i got got in did some lidar time power line inspections pipeline patrols random tours of the portland area the gorge wine tours whatever random things 50 shades of gray flights with the heathman hotel there i did not i didn't see i never got to do that one i had i had like three of them nice yeah it was weird uh in fact i (laughs) remember what I remember one of the ladies like threw up all over the back of the 44. <sighs> it's like uh not so romantic lady. That's No, no, you lost yeah, it cool all of a sudden. You really that that the spark is gone. Uh um, Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm curious, you know, cuz I've never I've never a utility guy. I've been uh I I call it like the white collar path of flying, like the super boring stuff, like go fly circles in the Grand Canyon. Um, go fly EMS, which is, uh, you know, there's some complexity to it, but at the end of the day, mm-hmm. it's like usually taking some sick person from one podunk hospital to the city. I mean, it's very much a milk run. Um, right. So I've never really been in the utility world. And I think that there's probably a lot of listeners that are out there that would be really interested to hear what that's all about. So educate it's, me. I'd love to learn I about will, what this is all about. I'm going to teach you something today, Halsey. Perfect. I love it. That maple syrup. That maple syrup. I'll probably just send you more maple syrup too while we're uh, at it. Uh, we'll take it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the utility side, and uh, this is a debatable topic. I'm sure you've read some of the pilot forums where you know, they're like, "Oh, you're not utility. You're, you're you're not pulling power line. You're not putting poles up for construction." Um, and I'll let them argue that, and make themselves feel better about. It. And I'm not knocking any of the guys that do that, by the way. I'm sure. Just. My experience in the utility world is primarily fire. Okay. On it. So got through that first season. Um, 2017 was actually started the year out doing some cherry drying in Jet Ranger, which I'd never done before. So that was interesting. Um, it didn't rain a lot that year, so we didn't fly much. So I got great sun. I had this awesome tan going by like end of June. It's like just oddly dangerous, out. that job, right? Is it like, it, I remember like one sketchy. year, like three fatal accidents, like yeah. wire strike um, and. Yeah. Yeah, power lines clipping around fields, your orchards are flying over. Um, it's interesting, um, that's for sure. I, mean, yeah. I had fun, I enjoyed it. Um, it was a little challenging, to, just something I'd never done before. And I was out there with another one, we had two Jet Rangers out on that contract. Um, so that was interesting work. And cherry season wrapped up, and I'm like, cool, here's your long range, you're back for fire season. It's still a call when needed. Uh, then Franz calls one day and is like, hey, we're sending you to Hood River. And I'm like, oh, well, that's convenient. That's right yeah, down the road. Certainly worse place like, to go. be, too. Yeah. Like, talking to everybody that's been doing fire long enough at that point, they're like, oh, lucky you. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's way better than, like, Burns. <sighs> oh, Burns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we get out there, and I'm thinking, like, you know, it's like day one of fire. Cool. What's what are we doing? Oh, it's some sixty-acre fire way up this drainage in the gourd. It really isn't doing much. They're like, we just basically need a light helicopter out here to throw some bodies on, be able to recon it, keep an eye on it. Um, we had a Chinook out there, a Columbia Chinook, in, sitting in Hood River. Oddly enough, um, another one of our former coworkers, Wesley Griffin, was on that aircraft. Which so I landed there with mine and. Later that day, Wes is like, I knew I do that voice and that tail number. It's so funny. Like, oh. I was like, man, that's so cool. We goofed around out there. Um, great experience for me, really relaxed. This wasn't some big, crazy 16 helicopter helibase um, with some 45,000 acre fire ripping into neighborhoods. This was, we're babysitting something up in the woods. We're like, cool. Um, it was up on a really steep slope. Nobody could hike to it. They couldn't attack it from the ground. So like, we'll just smash it with water every now and then. 
And that thing just wouldn't go away. God, that thing just sat there for weeks. It's like it smoldered. Like, yeah. Three days in a row, there'd be no smoke on it. You know, day four, you go up there and you're like, oh, well, it woke up. And, <laughs> it's um, again. and then it kind of became this other cool thing. Like, we have a helicopter here. Like, we just got a bunch of lightning up by Mount Adams. Why don't you guys go check it out? Um, so we slowly just started branching our missions out, uh, which is, I don't think I could have, looking back, started in the fire industry any easier than the way it worked out. It was like, go fly some recon. Yeah, exactly. It was very low stress, low pace. Um, and people that were like, oh, you're new. Let me help you. That was another great aspect. I just ended up with these great aircraft managers and firefighters I was working with that were all like, oh, this is your first, first season with us. Cool. Um, and then as you know, being an Oregon native, September of 2017, when the Eagle Creek fire lit off. Um, Columbia River Gorge went from being this little 500 acre putzing around fire to, I think at one point we had 18 or 20 helicopters in the gorge. Um, yeah, it's national news for they, every night. I mean, it's oh, crazy. It was crazy. Um, night one of it, which I don't remember, a lot of people remember, there was 150 hikers trapped between our little fire and the new one that firefighters went in and hiked out overnight. Um, and not, and you've hiked probably Eagle Creek before, right? Oh yeah. Not an easy trail if you don't. Um, no, terrifying. Um, actually, I hate that. Yeah. I hate that trail. I've... Yeah, it's beautiful. One of my favorite areas in the gorge, but um, terrifying. Like, oh, they're, they're hiking how many people out? Of yeah. course, it was my day off when this started, so that was another weird. I'm driving back down, you know, I-84 back to Hood River, and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of smoke up there. Texting with somebody back back home they're like i think there's a new fire i'm like all right franz is fly my relief that's always always fun when your boss is your relief pilot and sure yeah then i get to the hella base all the helicopters flying everyone's scrambling everyone's getting worked up um but i just remember franz coming back in and at that point too it's like franz he's our our do oh this guy can go do any mission do anything and but i think he was a little frazzled too coming back just because the tempo went from this very laid back atmosphere to um, this is going sideways fast. And so that was, yeah. that was all of a sudden now my real fire experience. How did that, how did that, I mean, first off, how did you manage that? But I mean, that has to be a common thing where you're here, you are flying around, enjoying it, going to Mount Adams, doing this kind of easy stuff, milk runs, you know, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's like, boom, this crazy level of intensity. I mean, did you have to have like a mental conversation with yourself? Like, Hey, I know that there's a level here that's going to change, but I still need to do there my were, own There were definitely some moments like that. Um, you know, one thing with kind of some of my background before I got into aviation was last minute, high stress situations on a ship. And so I just kind of, for me, it's, a, it's actually easy to just kick gears, go focus on what we need to do. It's when we land, that weird decompression moment of it. Um, yeah, it was a little tough sometimes. It was also more for me. It's like, oh, this is this is the gorge. I spent three it's, years flying up and down this thing. Like, yeah, it's sad. Um, it was, yeah. Thing. So it's also you know it's your backyard and and watching it burn. Um, but that was also one thing too, a big eye opener with how a large fire works, how the amount of aircraft we had in the air, um, the airspace deconflictions going on. Like, hey, I need you to move out of the way. We're bringing tankers in. We're doing this. And this helicopter's coming in. And so the tempo picked up pretty intense. And I, I was not near, I mean, I'm going to sound silly maybe saying this to some people, but I, at one point I was like, this isn't nearly as stressful as everyone made it out to be. Um, you know, looking back on it two weeks later when we got home, I was like, oh, my God, that was a mess. Yeah, like, like you probably cool. slept for two weeks. Pretty what? much, yeah. What's the communication? Is it is that done on like an FM radio set up in the helicopter? Yeah, so most of our, our crew coordination, um, air to ground, um, repeaters scattered all over. Those are FM radios okay. on there. And then we'll still run our standard AM radios, aircraft to aircraft, um, with our air attack platforms or our, our helco platforms and coordinate aircraft that way. And then you're talking to the guys on the ground on an FM. Yeah, and I can only imagine. I mean, I've flown a couple of air medical scenes before where there's one or two, three helicopters landing all at once, and it's a little bit stressful. But, like, who's 
who's in charge of ensuring kind of this this controlled chaos in my head it kind of sounds like like who's it is who's the guy um, pointing directions so it all i mean there's a there is a very format structure to this so if people aren't familiar once you got x amount of aircraft up in there generally more than two you bring in an air attack platform and essentially somebody orbiting up above the fire up above the aircraft working with a firefighter on board they're they're in charge of the airspace they're coordinating people in and out um so they'll take care of the flying side now, depending on how we're set up, like in this case, we're using a private landowner's field. At this point, we brought some of the aircraft and set up an established helibase. Um, so they've got a box sitting there. You basically have somebody you're talking to on the radio kind of clearing you in on, you know, oh, not an FAA clearance, but you're getting clear for takeoff landings in there. They're calling traffic out, um, birds, winds on it. So it's, it's relatively organized. Yeah, they, they definitely know what they're doing. Yeah. And... And at that time, you're in a long ranger. I mean, is that an aircraft that they're utilizing still for scouting, or are you dropping water at that point? Um, so on that fire specifically, we weren't dropping water. Um, I was flying about six hours a day, and they were all recon flights. So about every two hours, we'd put a whole new load of people that wanted to check the fire out. Um, division commanders, incident commanders, people in charge of the fire that need to look at the big picture, look at you know perimeters, where we can stop the fire at, what's threatened if this goes five miles down the road, things like that. Um, oh, that's more. We were the only light, the only small helicopter there. Everything else was, you know, a 205, a medium or bigger. Sure. So those guys are definitely the, the workhorses of the water side, for sure, on it. Um, but I think at one point, we were, that long range was flying more than anybody else. Yeah, you're just kind of that scout. Yeah, it makes sense. I yeah. Mean, I, I could yeah. see that You're being. in the air all the time. And, and again, though, it's kind of cool, though. I mean, talk about a good experience. Like, you got to kind of start off, ease into it. Then it got crazy. Mm-hmm. But you weren't, uh, I mean, it's still probably super busy. But I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're dropping water, especially if you're doing it a lot, I mean, that's that's probably somewhat exhausting and a kind of a new level of intensity. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, it can be. Um, you know, it's... It's kind of a two-sided thing for me. It's like I land somewhere, kick the crew out. We're going to attack, initial attack this fire. They'll slap the bucket on. And then you're like, cool, I'm in the aircraft by myself. Like now just my favorite fire is where they haven't even hiked up to it, but I I can beat them with water. And yeah, you'd have nobody on the ground yet. You're not talking about, you're not worried about somebody being under you on a drop and you're just kind of doing your own thing. Um, so you can actually take a pause, like, there's no rush on these missions. There's no like, you didn't get me 17 buckets. You only brought me 14. Um, nothing like that. That's not yeah, how, how the industry kind of works out there. Industry. It's the safety culture is a lot higher. It's not production work um, on it. So kind of get that nice, like calm moment. Like I'm the aircraft by myself. It's chill on there. Um, you get guys on the ground. Now they'll start calling your drops, directing where they want buckets and, and things. And the pace can pick up. Um, my current contract right now, so we're going into year four of a four-year contract. So this is our last okay. year. So I've been working with the same crew the last three seasons. It's incredible. That was awesome. Um, and one thing I like, you know, kind of bring up when I've talked to like flight students or, or CFIs, like, oh, how do you get into it? When we talk about CRM and aviation, a lot of people, it's always just like, oh, well, that's two pilot crews. That's, yes, we have two pilot crews on fires. Um, we're flying a light. I'm flying a 407 right now. It's single pilot everything, but there is a massive amount of CRM that has to happen between the crew, your aircraft manager, the firefighters on the ground. And so kind of after you know, three seasons with these guys, yeah, it, it can get stressful. You're running buckets all day. It can definitely get exhausting what you're bringing. Um, you might not notice that at the time. It's again, when you land and shut down, you step out of the aircraft and you're like, oh, man, I need a break. Yeah, on totally. It. But I think because there is this great CRM aspect to it too, it does the mental exhaustion workload. For me, I've, what I've noticed is kind of dropped over the years. Like, all right, I know exactly what these guys are going to ask for when they get up there. Like, there's, we might change plans last minute and on the fly, but we're just the way we brief it and the way we discuss it and come up with that decision is it's not stressful. Like, it, it's going to happen. And that's part of you have to understand. You've got to adapt. You've got to change, be flexible with the mission. But having the right people and the right CRM working that situation does alleviate so much of the stress. 
Yeah, and it's nice. I mean, especially after you've been working with the same people. I mean, you you become like in sync. Like you're just yeah, really being able to, uh, you know, it's like finishing the guy's sentence, you know, before they can like you just mm-hmm. know what's happening. And so uh, I think that's really, uh, you know, probably a cool thing. And specifically in in that kind of environment, you know, where it can be stressful to be able to rely on other people. And I think that's a really good point that you bring up as like a pilot. We sometimes feel like, hey, we're the, we're the ones shaking the stick up front, you know. We're 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 the the cool ones, you know. We're doing all the cool stuff, and we're the most important ones. But it's it's really a supporting cast, and it is. It, you yeah, know, we're a tool for these guys. We're yeah. we're just one of their tools in a toolbox of things they can use to help their mission. Um, you know, then the dates we're contracted to them that it's their use of the aircraft, what they want us to do. So. That's yeah, having that just, coordination with people is, is super key in this um, for a multitude of different reasons, but to keep the safety level up as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, uh, you know, air medical is the same kind of deal. It's like the, mm-hmm. the crew in the back is like the self, you know, some people say the self loading baggage and, you know, at, at a point I would argue that, you know, the crew is the crew. I mean, there's not much they can do sitting in the back. However, you actually do learn pretty fast. Like, man, there's a lot of things that they can do. They can help with the FM radio. They can mm-hmm. always be looking out for traffic. You know, the air medical crew takes it extremely seriously. Most do. And, you know, I felt like, man, if I include them within what I'm doing, then I'm only enhancing my environment of safety. 100%. And, you know, I just think that it's a, it's a, it's probably a negative culture or a negative way to look at like, oh, I'm, I'm the final authority here. Like, I'm not going to listen to anyone else. You know, and that's probably, I mean, in the air medical world, at least, like, that's how you don't make friends. Like, you know, if you want to be at a base, everyone hates you. Be that yeah. guy. I mean, I kind of look at it if you, you want to not be a, a team player and a people person in the aircraft or have other people question, and it doesn't have to be in a rude way, just question something like, hey, did you see that bird over there? Did you see that wire? Hey, instead of being like, yeah, man, I've landed here 30 times. I'm like, no, that's not the environment. That's not the CRM. That's not the attitude we want in the aircraft ever. But I'm like, you want to kind of be that pilot? I'm like, go fly a restricted old Huey with a bucket only and never put a crew on board. I, know, it's, um, I take the fact that we are, I'd say 90% of our flights are manned with the crew. Yeah. And they're putting their trust in me as a pilot, in the aircraft as a machine to get their job done. So I'm also going to put the trust in, oh, it's your first flight back there? And all of a sudden like, we're coming into land you're like oh what's that over there like call it out question it you're new to this yeah. you don't know any better i can pull this thing out of this approach circle around we'll talk about it and that's it like that's the end you know there's no you're not going to hurt my feelings yeah of course yeah. i mean we would like, have it like the new we would have like a new med crew and they'd be like uh, traffic three o'clock and i would look and it'd be like a boeing 737 at like thirty thousand feet and i'm like well that's good and i appreciate that always feel free to call yeah. that out yeah. Not necessarily a factor, but, you know, good eye. You know, it's just kind of, uh, you know, getting them used to that environment. But it's silly not to use your resources and your tools. No, 100%. Um, you know, one other big part, like the current contract I'm on now, our spring, like I mentioned earlier, we're about ready to leave in two and a half, three weeks. We head out east. We head to Illinois, Missouri, Michigan and start early. Um, region 8, Region 9, the eastern regions start a lot of prescribed burns this time of year. Really? So that's our pride. Yeah, we'll load the aircraft up with a PSD machine and light the ground on fire and burn things down. No way. Um, Shoot, like yeah. the, uh, is that like the ping pong balls of fire? Yep, exactly. Oh my um, God. I didn't know y'all did that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's our primary primary work when we're out there. I mean, we're still initial attack fire support um, whenever needed, but that's our primary objective for most of our flying out there early in the year. Um, it's a low, it's a low flight. You're not that high off the ground. You're um, well, the machines we're running are a little newer. We can run them up 300, 400 feet, about 60 knots. Some of the older machines, you're down lower and slower. So it's a not warm and fuzzy profile. You're kind of hanging in that HV curve. Well, you're hanging in the HV curve all the time doing bucket work, long line work, but nobody's on board with you. Yeah, um, just you. You're the unfortunate yeah, prescriber, one. Yeah, prescriber, ignition, you've got at least two on board with you, if not three sometimes. Um, and so those, for me, the... Um, that's where the CRM and the aircraft just is. It's got to be there. It's got to yeah, be I mean, huge. I low, work with a really, really amazing crew. Um, I'll throw props out to those guys that they're, they've been in aviation a long time. Um, you know, we're 
we're at a rappel base. These guys rappel out of 205s. It's wow. a rappel crew, and they just happen to staff our 407 as well. Um, the rappel world, short haul world, all those worlds have some very orchestrated SOP safety procedures in place. Um, so I'm, I'm flying all the time with guys who are doing some higher risk missions than just getting crew shuttle up to the fire. Sure. They're sitting in a 205 and an OG hover at 300 feet, throwing ropes out the side and sliding down them. So What's the worst that, that could happen? Oh, first time I watched this live, I was just like, oh, why? What, why? I know. It's, it ter- it's place. terrifying. It I mean, it would be like the most exciting thing. And they do it well. Oh, yeah. I'm like, I'm amazed when they go do it. Even just watching proficiencies at the airport when they're rappelling, you know, to the runway or where or grass field, wherever they're going into. It's just like, oh, you guys are so cool. Yeah, and I saw it, some um, DPS guys doing that the other day in San Antonio. And I was like, that's uh, pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, that's... it doesn't take much. I think pilots in general, we probably nerd out over any aircraft thing. So, yeah, this is cool. What I appreciate that too with this this crew specifically is you have some very experienced aviation professionals. They're not pilots, but they've been putting their entire career in aircraft, a lot of them. So when we get into the burn season, we had a couple years back, there was a fatality down in Texas on a burn. There's been previous fatalities on prescribed burns with the aircraft accidents. Mm. So it's a people are a little touchy about it. Um, it gets brought up. I've talked to a lot of pilots who've been burning for years and they're just like, ah. Get in the bird and go fly. It's not hard. It's it's not hard. It's not hard flying. It's straight and level. Flip sure. a U-turn. Run a track next to where you just drop balls. Um, but you know, you're, you're low, slow profile. The winds get shifty. Yeah. Um, don't put balls over the line outside of where we're supposed to be burning. So it's like sometimes your turns get a little snappy. And, you know, we're always briefing LT conditions, wind conditions. Um or what? Oh, that machine in the back. What if? What happens when that thing goes sideways? And oh, wait. Like, yes, I'm. I'm on fire. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> okay. We haven't had any major, major issues out there ever with a machine, <laughs> which is good. You get one jam every now and then, and there's protocols where to fix it, clear, it, and you just always climb the aircraft up higher and safer until we're ready to go again. Um, yeah, I think. What, well, anytime you're flying a helicopter, I mean, no matter whether you're flying a complex mission short haul you know the tetons or your you know flying circles eng in san antonio i mean you have to always have a level of intensity i mean at at any point for me personally i'm always kind of planning like all right well what's going to happen when you know i'm over hmm. the highway right now and there's doesn't really seem to be a great landing area it's like where am i going to go like it's just always being you know prepared and having that readiness and I still think some of my most stressful flights to this day are photo flights in R22 in downtown Portland. Oh, God. Like, I, no thanks. Yeah. I, I look back on it. I'm like, oh, man, I think I was, how many I was, years of that did I do? I think I was oddly thinking about that today. I don't know why. I think my I think my wife was talking about something in regards to uh, Zach Whitehead flying photo flights, something on a bio that we just wrote on him. And, and uh, like I, I just like remembered. I was like, oh my God, I did that like a lot. Scary. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. So I think, yeah. We we are getting close to end time here, but uh, I do want to broach this subject because I feel like hopefully as the listeners grow here and the audience grows, I hope it's not just a bunch of dudes listening. Uh, I feel like the industry is lacking in female uh, pilots. I mean, it's always kind of been a bit of a boys club. Uh, what is, what is that, right. what is that scenario like? I mean, you obviously were in the military, which one would argue is also kind of more of a oh, boys so the, club. The Navy is the original good old boys club, I'm sure at some point. So, um, no, yeah, it is, it's, it's different being just even the fact you show up somewhere 99% of the time, I'm going to be the only female pilot in the group. Um, every hell of base I've been on, I'm the only girl. So I mean that on its own. It's got its perks. Everybody knows you immediately. So it's <laughs> yeah. really nice to make connections. Um, it has the downside too. Everybody knows whose female voice is on the radio. So if you screw anybody, anything up, it's, it's really easy to pinpoint. Um, no, the industry definitely, the numbers are low. I think overall in aviation, they're still sitting around 7% female pilots. That's, that's helicopter or fixed wing as, as a whole. Um, numbers are going up slowly. What do you think? I mean, what's your hypothesis? Because I look at it like my wife. Like, she's just not like, I feel like she was just born not to like, want to love driving or flying things. Like, it's just like for her, it's like this mentality of, 
not. I feel like a lot of women are that way, but do you think it's just because socially they're raised that way? I don't, I don't know if I would say it's so much that either. I think there is just an inherent thing where you, what you have to have an interest in aviation to get into yeah. it for sure. Um, and you know, it's like, I've, I've gone, done little seminars and spoke to a bunch of you know, teenage girls about getting into aviation before. And two or three of them are like, this sounds cool. And the rest are like, cool. Nice to meet you. Thanks for talking. Yeah. And that's cool. Like, that's fine. I mean, those are, you go speak for teenage kids. It's to get them an exposure. I think we're cresting past the point where it wasn't that women aren't exposed or know that these jobs are out there and they can go do it. And they're welcome out in the field anymore. I think we passed that point where women 20, 30 years ago was definitely a different, a different industry. Like sure. You didn't see female airline pilots. You didn't you probably didn't see female helicopter pilots anywhere. No. Um, so there's definitely more. Uh, last year, I know a you know, handful of girls jumped in first fire season years. Um, that's great. Like to see more girls getting into this side of the industry as well. Um, I do think part of it's just exposure and letting people like, hey, I have an interest in this and I don't. Um, yeah, that's true. It's just it's it's just funny. It's uh, because still in my career, I mean, it's very. I see a female helicopter pilot. It's it's almost like you know you just don't see it every day. It's just crazy. It's like you right. don't run into it, you know. Um, but it's cool. I mean, I think that the I always felt like from a flight instructor standpoint, at least, flying with a female student was always easier. Because there is a lack of ego compared to flying with a with a dude, where the, I think the guy that's a true had to statement. be like had to be perfect. Now, the, I would also argue that on the female side, there's maybe some hesitancy or some other things that were like you could just tell 100%. like different from a guy and a girl in the training environment. But I honestly think that it was easier to teach a female student uh, than most guy students, and I felt like women were respectful of the machine. It, it wasn't so much about like I had to be great and perfect right away. It was like it seemed like women were okay to go with the flow and kind of be in the process yeah. where I'm like, I'm on my first day of school and I'm like, why can't I auto? You know, right, like right. I should be able to do this, you know? I mean, I've had some situations um, like one of my pet peeves with people is always like, oh, well, the last pilot we had did this. And I'm like, cool. I don't really care. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um and there's always some underlying comment. There's the tone behind that comment. It's usually like, oh, you're the first girl we've flown with. or And so they want to make a point. And I'm like, again, you know, I used to try to be like, I would get like, ah, oh, why would you make comments like that? And also, I just it's easy for me to let stuff roll off my shoulders. It's At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Um, I've had mechanics tell me they appreciate female pilots more because we're nicer to the aircraft, which I think is probably a true story. Um I think yeah, probably, I can see probably that. a little I can gentler see that. and a little friendlier. Um, I've had other pilots, other pilots tell me like, oh, you know, you talk to, you know, pilot A over here and they're going to go do the same mission as you. And then at one point I'm like, hey, like we're going to call it off for the day or the wind suck, um, something changed. And they're like, oh, well, this guy's still out flying. I'm like, okay, again, yeah, that's their yep. personal choice, not my, like, so, I mean, yeah, maybe I, most girls I know flying, I think we might be a little more um, conservative with some of our flying in the sense of we're, we don't have the ego. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. We're not going to, I don't have to go out and prove any, anything. I yeah. just go out and do my job safely every day, bring the crew home safely, bring the machine back in the same condition and call it a day. So there's those things on it. Um, I don't yeah, know, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a funny thing. And I, I definitely see that the industry is growing with females oh, like it's a hundred percent like it's like, it's definitely there's there's more women getting involved uh it's it's more of a thing and i you know i hope it continues and you know i think that being able to have uh you know have strong female figures within an industry is good so i appreciate you coming on uh to the helicopter oh, podcast absolutely. uh not only are you my first female guest you're my second guest ever so it's ah, uh yeah. Awesome. You know, we're, so we're 50 50. We're, we, we we're keep it even with guys and girls here on the show. We had Sean Moretz last week. Right. Which uh, was a great one. That was a thank great you. podcast, I love Sean. by the way. Sean's, yeah, Sean's, Sean awesome. is, Sean's the man. Um, and we're going to continue to have Sean on in the future with some DPE, kind of, you know, ask the DPE. Awesome. And with that, we'd love to uh, keep in touch with you. Love to, uh, you know, I feel like we just kind of scratched the surface today on on what you're doing and whatnot. So I hope that you're willing to come back. This wasn't hopefully too painful. 
uh, oh, no, of an experience. No, awesome. uh, but I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, but yeah, we've it's been an hour, so we're gonna wrap it up. But uh, Emily Spates, thank you so much. Um, thank you, Halsey. <laughs> excuse me and i'm like choking over here um and for our listeners out there go ahead to the helicopter podcast facebook page please like us comment uh leave leave or troll me i don't care like more people talking on facebook is better for me uh no press is bad press what i would love though is if you have uh you know positive feedback on guests or questions that you might have or things that you might want to learn about the whole point of this is to bring value to to our listeners so it's great to have guests like emily uh and i hope that there's other people out there that want to talk so uh thank you again emily and thank thanks you. everyone for listening to the helicopter podcast as always a special thanks to Helicopter for producing this podcast Specializing in helicopter evaluations, faster sales, and superb service, Celicopter is the go-to agency for clients expecting immediate results. Celicopter's team of helicopter professionals are the best in the business. Using their aviation expertise, a nationwide network, and a proprietary 76-step listing strategy, Celicopter will convert your listing from Mayday to Payday. Ready to get started? Text HELICOPTER to 1-855-CELICOPTER. That's helicopter to 1-855-735-5226. And a Celicopter pilot agent will reach out. Celicopter. List it. Sell it. Done.